welcome to today's American Bankruptcy Institute podcast. My name is Scott Pryor, and I'm a professor of law at the Regent University School of Law. This semester, I'm also the American Bankruptcy Institute resident scholar. Since at least the enactment of the Securities Act of 1933, we have sought to address certain market failures with disclosure. Disclosing more and more accurate information was thought to be the best means of addressing the disparities in information between parties that exist in many sorts of transactions. Information alone, however, does not inevitably lead to prudent action. More recently, and as well known to those who practice in the field of consumer bankruptcy, legislators and regulators have identified consumer financial education as the solution to consumers' inability to evaluate the information provided to them and ultimately to make better choices. Professor Lauren Willis has, by my count, written seven articles addressing in some way the success or lack thereof of consumer financial education. A 2009 article provocatively titled Against Financial Literacy Education gives us a sense of her ultimate conclusions. Professor Willis has also been cited positively in a recent issue of The Economist magazine. However, Professor Willis is not an ivory tower academic. She has undertaken and made use of substantial empirical research to support her conclusions. With that, I'd like to ask uh, Lauren to tell us a little bit about herself, where she teaches, and what piqued her interest in the topic of consumer financial education. Thank you, Scott. Uh, So I'm currently a professor at Loyola Los Angeles, a law professor. I'm going to be visiting at Harvard Law School next year. Uh, But I started, before becoming an academic, I started as a civil rights litigator at the Department of Justice. I was doing housing discrimination cases, and I became interested in this problem of predatory mortgage lending. So I went on loan to the Federal Trade Commission to help them with a predatory mortgage lending case. And in that case, I saw that the way that borrowers, consumers, were thinking about money, were thinking about their finances, were thinking about their mortgage, was unrelated to the legal disclosures that they were being given. Uh, And that they either didn't read the disclosures, or if they did read the disclosures, they completely misunderstood them. Um, or to the extent that they understood them a bit, by the time they received them, it was too late. They'd already made a decision about what they were going to do, so the disclosures weren't even really used in their decision-making process. And uh, at first, I thought, well, maybe financial education could help folks if they could understand these disclosures better. Maybe if we worked a little bit on timing of when we gave people disclosures, that would help. Uh, I read some uh, speeches given by folks at the Federal Reserve, including uh, the chairman. Uh, And uh, I saw their research that was cited that uh, allegedly showed that financial education can be quite effective in helping folks. So I took a look at those studies and, to my dismay, found that most of those studies were seriously flawed uh, from a research standpoint. And the only studies that were fairly good, like they used decent controls and representative samples and that kind of thing, they either showed that the educational intervention had no effect or uh, a slight negative effect or such a tiny effect as to really be useless. Uh, So some work by Jean Browker, I believe a former uh, professor in your position, Scott, uh, showed a slight negative effect, actually, 
for bankruptcy completion of those who had taken these courses versus those who had not back when only it wasn't a requirement at that time. Uh, and other work by Karen Gross and Susan Blockweeb, although they found sort of a tiny effect in terms of people reporting that they were doing a little bit better uh, financially after receiving some uh, of those classes, really it was probably an artifact of unrepresentative samples and self-reporting errors because very, very few of those consumers who received the treatment actually responded to the follow-up questionnaires. And so really I was shocked and dismayed when I when I found this and thought, gee, people should know about this. We shouldn't have the chairman of the Federal Reserve walking around citing these bad studies. I better write something up and let folks know uh, that this isn't working. Uh, and since I uh, wrote my, my work showing um, how the research, uh, in fact, did not support a conclusion that financial education worked, and, and to the contrary, showed either no effect or maybe some slight negative effects, other folks have more recently confirmed doing meta-analyses of prior studies or using massive data troves, tracking, you know, thousands and thousands of folks who received education in, in high school and that kind of thing. Uh, there, that research has now confirmed uh, what I earlier uh, had seen. So John Lynch and his team uh, did a meta-analysis of past studies of financial education and found that it did not lead to any better financial outcomes. Sean Cole and Gary Cartini Shastri did a study following you know, massive uh, numbers of folks who had taken financial education classes in high school and found that there was not any positive effect on financial outcomes. And more recently, uh, D. Warmath has uh, done a similar analysis that once she adds some controls, uh, to the data, she finds that uh, it, there's there's really no uh, improvement in financial outcomes for folks. And so then I started thinking, well, why is that? Why why is this education not working? I'm an educator. I like to think education works, right? Uh, but when you think about financial education, it's it's different than some other things. So first, the gulf is just too wide between what we expect people to be able to do in today's world and what people can realistically be expected to do. Um, You know, to ask people to forecast their future income, to forecast what their various investments are going to earn and how that's going to work out when they retire, that's something experts do poorly, never mind just your average person on the street. And, you know, we don't ask folks to read sort of uh, things like medical lab reports or studies of drug efficacies and then decide themselves how to treat themselves uh, medically. We have doctors for that. So it really seems to make sense in the financial space to uh, start thinking, hey, this is complicated. This is like medicine now uh, in today's world, and maybe we need to think about it that way. Uh, Another issue is the dynamism of the marketplace. Uh, lots of folks are given these classes in high school, and by the time they're out there making decisions, everything has changed. Uh, and so I saw that actually when I was working on the predatory mortgage litigation. I spoke to some people who said, oh, no, my, my loan's interest rate can't possibly be 24% 
uh, that's usury. And I, I was taught back in school that that's illegal. Well, when, you know, the 70- or 80-year-old gentleman I was speaking to went to school, that's true, it was illegal. Uh, but it's not anymore. Uh, it's now legal. It became legal in uh, the late 70s and early 80s. Another issue uh, is that our psychology really leads us astray. And so even folks who are really well-educated about finance make serious mistakes. I mean, the, the people at Lehman Brothers, those, those aren't folks who were not financially educated, and yet they made wild mistakes. I mean, the, the, the firm went under. And uh, a lot of this uh, has been discussed and researched in what's called the behavioral economics literature. So one of the consistent findings in that literature is over-optimism. On, on the one hand, we think of that as this great American trait, right? We're an optimistic people. That's wonderful. And that, that's a positive force in our society in a lot of ways. But it leads us to bad outcomes when we don't save for a rainy day because we don't think a rainy day is going to come. Uh, and so our psychology ends up overwhelming uh, what knowledge we have about financial uh, affairs. In addition, and the other thing I saw again in the predatory mortgage lending litigation, uh, and I've seen again and again, is that sellers have the resources to run circles around financial education. I mean, when you're actually sitting in the room with the mortgage salesperson, that person across the table knows so much more about that product uh, than you do that they can just talk you around what you think you know, and you're going to believe them because they, they are the expert in the room. And so it doesn't really matter if you have sort of a, a good basic knowledge of finance when you're in a situation where you're facing marketing, advertising, sales talk. In addition, there's just the basic problem, which has been discussed quite a bit of late in, in the news, that people's wages are just too low. And it's not just that they're low, it's also that they're unpredictable. So a huge amount of the workforce now, uh, mostly those who are in part-time jobs, but increasingly even in full-time or, or supposed full-time jobs, uh, who are paid hourly, can't actually know from week to week what their schedule is and how many hours they're really going to work. So you can't budget for long-term expenses like buying a car if you don't know what your income is going to be over the five or seven years you plan to be paying back the loan on this car. But you need the car to get to work, to get income in the first place. And so we set people up in this situation where they can't possibly figure it out. There's, there is no you know, financial equation that's going to figure it out for them because the truth is they don't have steady wages, which you would need in order to uh, make those calculations. Uh, and those who work in bankruptcy certainly, certainly know uh, other issues here. Uh, you know, with half of bankruptcies being related to medical uh, debt, in some ways it seems crazy to require bankruptcy debtors to go and do financial education. You know, maybe they should be going to nutrition education or health education or, you know, some kind of education on how to be a better negotiator to get their hospital bill lowered. But financial education is, is just uh, seems 
totally unrelated to the underlying problem of medical debt. Uh, so it may be that some debtors enjoy these classes. Uh, there has been some finding that, that it's a, you know, not such a bad experience to have to go to these classes. Uh, maybe there's some emotional aspect to them that's helpful uh, rather than an actual sort of learning of finance. Uh, perhaps there's a sense of camaraderie or support from other folks in bankruptcy. Hey, I'm not in this alone. Look at everybody in the room, you know, is having financial problems, that kind of thing. Uh, but it doesn't seem that folks are exiting those classes with more knowledge with better financial decisions. And, you know, the National Consumer Law Center actually audited some of these classes and uh, did find that there there's some problems with the content sometimes as well, that uh, teachers are teaching different things and some of which appears to be wrong. Although some of the inconsistency could be because financial experts don't all agree uh, on everything. Uh, and so uh, asking people to do what the experts can't even agree on seems a quite quite a tall task, rather too much for, for folks to to try to do. Yeah, Lauren, one of the first things you mentioned that uh, struck me as certainly counterintuitive is that uh, some, at least some consumer financial education actually has a negative effect. Could you elaborate on that? Well, it's not a strong effect, so I don't want to overstate it. I mean, it's, it's a small effect, and uh, so it's not a big deal. On the other hand, I do think that there are reasons why one might expect to find a negative effect, uh, and that's the over-optimism effect. So you often get people coming out of these classes, and they say things like, oh, great, now I can go off and plan my finances. Now I've been empowered. Now I understand all this. I can, I can do this all. And, and some things they might have in the past, tried to get someone else to help them with, or maybe they would have shied away from sort of riskier decisions and that kind of thing. And they, they might come out of the classes thinking that they can do more than they really can. Uh, and so uh, there was uh, one study that found folks coming out of uh, uh, retirement planning uh, classes, it was a class actually on sort of how to, once you were retired, spend down your, uh, your money, how to plan for that. And folks came out of the class saying, oh, great, now I can do this on my own. And then they were tested. And it turns out that they bombed the test. They would all far outlive their money if they did the things that they said they would do in uh, this testing. Uh, in addition, we find uh, that folks who are victims of things like investment frauds, uh, so the SEC's research, that kind of thing, often finds that it's folks who are more financially knowledgeable than average who are more likely to be victimized. And it may be that there's sort of a, a curve here, you know, where uh, you start learning a little and a little bit of knowledge is worse than none at all because you stop protecting yourself and you think you know more than you do. Maybe once you become an expert, that to some extent helps you, right, uh, unless you sort of succumb to... Uh, to, let's call it Lehman Brothers uh, illness or that kind of thing, that uh, irrational exuberance kind of stuff. But, uh, but the, the amount of knowledge that can be transferred in, you know, just a, a single course or series of classes may be such that it actually makes people 
overconfident and more more overconfident than they would have been without the class. Yeah, and that raises the, the topic you had mentioned before, the insights of behavioral economics, the certain biases which well, we seem pre-programmed at least uh, to engage the heuristics of uh, making decision-making, which can, as life gets more complicated, backfire and lead us, lead us astray. Uh, what, what have you drawn from behavioral economics, and what are some of the leading insights that you found valuable for analyzing consumer financial education? Um, well, there's there's all sorts of things at issue here. Um, the one I mentioned was the um, over-optimism issue. Uh, again, a sort of catch-22 for us as Americans because uh, being optimistic is, is a great American trait in many ways. Uh, another consistent finding in behavioral economics is uh, that folks discount too much, that uh, when they make decisions about the future, they have a present-time bias, uh, engage in short-term thinking. Uh, the same is true, although it's been less uh, sort of reported in the popular media. Uh, the psychologists have also found that when something is uncertain, people also discount uncertain events uh, too much. So if, for example, you have a short-term and very clear, a certain kind of effect, you can change people's behavior. So a $300 fine if you don't wear your seatbelt. That's a near-term, clear effect if you get caught, which, of course, has a little uncertainty. But, but still, it's fairly clear. You look at the sign that says $300 fine for no seatbelt. You can change folks' behavior with seatbelt laws. But whether to save enough for retirement in 30 years, how much am I going to need in 30 years? I don't know. People, uh, you know, can't sort of make those long-term decisions because they overweight the present in their thinking. And the future 30 years out is just so uncertain uh, that people discount it in their decision-making. They don't give it enough weight when they're deciding, okay, do I spend my money on something now, on buying the car now, or do I save it for retirement? Saving it for retirement seems iffy. It's just so uncertain. It's so far in the future. It seems like a better choice always to pick the car instead. Uh, and so that sort of biases our decision-making uh, to fail to plan well enough for their, our financial futures. Uh, another sort of issue that's come up in the behavioral economics literature and in the psychology uh, literature is that when there are many, many choices and lots and lots of information, that actually can be paralyzing. That more choices, though we normally think of that as a great thing, right? In the U.S., we, we're not in some communist country where we don't have any choice. We have tons of choices. We, we think that, you know, that's wonderful in the abstract. But when we actually look at folks facing choices, they can be, it can be paralyzing, having too many choices. And folks make worse decisions because faced with lots of choices and lots of information, people actually consider less information, uh, fewer sort of attributes of each of the things they're picking among than if you gave them fewer choices. If you gave them fewer choices, they would actually engage in a more thorough analysis and decision-making process. So, for example, you give folks a bunch of choices of how to invest their money in their retirement plan. If you give them lots of choices, they are more likely 
to not make any choice at all and just leave their money wherever the, whatever the default option is. Whereas if you give them fewer choices, they're more likely to investigate those choices and make at least a somewhat better decision about how to invest their money. Well, that brings up something that uh, that uh, I I saw in your writings there. The, you mentioned the default options. That is, we can structure uh, decision-making where the default option is the one that would be the best for most people most of the time. That would reduce uh, the errors that people make in choosing from many options. And that, of course, uh, Cass Sunstein is well known for the idea of nudge. I think you've... Uh, uh, analyzed that a little more closely and concluded that it's uh, not as simple as it may appear. Yeah, so the idea is if we make the default choice, uh, the, the choice of what happens to you if you essentially don't make a choice, don't do anything, uh, one that's good for most people. So instead of the default being that you don't put any money into your retirement plan, uh, until you actually fill out the paperwork and go down to HR and make a decision about how much to save each out of each paycheck and where to invest it. Instead of requiring you to do all that, we instead default a certain percentage of your pay to automatically go into a pre-selected uh, life cycle fund, something of that nature. Well, in that particular uh, area, it seems to work fairly well for most people. Not everyone, but it does work fairly well for most folks in the sense that it increases the likelihood that somebody's going to actually save something for retirement. Now, there are some issues that the default is often set too low uh, so that people actually save less for retirement than they otherwise would because although more people save, those who would have saved without the default would have put in more, but instead they see this low default number and they think that's advice telling them how much they ought to save, and so they only save the 3% or the 5% instead of the 6 or 7% or something along that, those lines. Um, but overall, it does seem to increase the number of folks participating, and other than for low-income employees, that's very low-income employees, that's probably a good idea. Very low-income employees might be better off spending the money now on paying down credit card debt and uh, staying out of financial trouble, that kind of thing, uh, rather than saving the money for retirement. But for lots of folks, it's better to save the money for retirement. So that, that seems like a good situation. Um, but the problem is we've now tried to take this default idea and apply it in places where it doesn't work out so well. So notice that in the retirement area, there's nobody trying to convince somebody to opt out of the default, right? The employer is happy for you to stay in the default. Uh, the uh, entity that's running the plan wants you to participate, you know, wants more dollars under management. Uh, so there's nobody trying to get you to make a different decision. Well, along comes overdraft. So overdraft is what happens when you try to spend more money than is in your checking account, and the bank lets you do it, but for a fee. And they charge you an overdraft fee. They let you overdraft your account. Now, it used to be that the default was that you didn't have to do anything or sign up for any service or anything like that. You were automatically defaulted into an account structure that allowed you to overdraft and would simply charge you for it. Uh, the regulators, financial regulators, decided, well, 
maybe we should change that because so many people are paying so much in the way of overdraft fees, uh, and people are often, you know, shocked when they pay for the $35 cup of coffee. They had no idea that, you know, their check from their employer hadn't cleared. They uh, didn't realize that that $3 cup of coffee was going to then cost them a whopping overdraft fee, um, and, you know, so on and so forth, these stories we saw in the media. And so the regulators thought, well, maybe what we should do is default people into accounts where they can't overdraft the account, that uh, the bank can't charge them an overdraft fee, so the bank's not going to let them overdraft, uh, but allow folks to opt out of the default. Well, guess what? There's somebody who wants you to opt out of the default. That's the bank. The bank wants you to opt out of the default very, very badly because a tremendous amount of revenue comes from overdraft fees. In fact, uh, free checking for those of us who don't overdraft comes, you know, it's funded by overdraft fees from the folks who do overdraft. Uh, so big revenue stream for the banks. And so they engaged in a massive uh, marketing effort uh, sales effort to get folks to opt out of the default and opt in to uh, going ahead and allowing their account to be one that could be overdrafted. Well, the whole process was very confusing for consumers. So consumers often didn't understand what it is they were being asked to opt out of, what, you know, what the result was going to be. Um, it was easy for the banks to confuse people because it's not really intuitive, this whole system. You know, what's a default? What's overdraft? What am I opting to do? The bank said, hey, do you want this free service, this service where we'll allow you to overdraft? And folks said, oh, well, I'll sign up for the free thing, not, you know, realizing that that means I'm going to pay $35 for a cup of coffee when my employer's check doesn't clear. Uh, and so the banks get engaged in um, this really masterful uh, kind of uh, marketing where they systematically undermined uh, or sort of flipped the biases or the, the psychology uh, mechanisms, psychological mechanisms that usually lead people uh, to stick with the default. And so did things like, you know, people often skip stick with the default just because they forget. Well, the banks made sure nobody forgot uh, to, um, to fill out the form. Uh, and one way they did it was uh, by just hounding people uh, with phone calls and uh, inundating people with advertising, trying to get people to opt out. A lot of folks said that the reason they opted out uh, was to get the phone calls to stop, to get the advertising to stop to get the pop-up window that they had to, you know, click through before they could get to their online checking account uh, to disappear so they wouldn't have to keep clicking it every time they logged on. Uh, another thing that the banks did is they framed the advertising as, do you want to keep this feature that you had on your account, or do you want to give it up, give up something? Well, one of the reasons defaults can be powerful is that people often think of them as something that they have and would have to give up if they opt out. But the way the banks framed the overdraft uh, issue was to switch that, uh, to switch it such that people felt like they had to check the box 
saying, yes, I'll sign up for your overdraft program uh, because they wanted to keep something. And, in fact, uh, some bank personnel that were interviewed said, look, people are afraid of change. If you tell them that if they don't check this box, there's going to be change, well, people are going to check the box. Uh, And so um, that's just two examples. But there were a bunch of ways in which uh, the bank marketing really – uh, appeared to be marketing that was created by behavioral economists. I mean, I, I assume that the banks had uh, some uh, psychologists on staff who actually came up with this uh, marketing and uh, really, really keyed it to undermining each of the reasons that defaults can be effective, can be sticky in the retirement situation uh, to, to undo those things. And so as a result, uh, there was just a huge amount of opt-out, it appears. Uh, we don't know precisely because the banks haven't released the figures precisely, but, but that's what, it, uh, what appears to be the case, is that lots of folks opted out. And in particular, the folks who opted out were the folks that were overdrafting their accounts before, which is actually a very small percentage of account holders. Uh, and so uh, those folks opted out, and... So those folks are now continuing to pay overdraft fees just like they were before, only now when they come to the bank and complain about it or try to complain about it to a court perhaps, the bank's going to have this little piece of paper to wave at them. Oh, you checked the box. Uh, so you chose uh, this problem for yourself. Uh, and so uh, this, the use of defaults in an area where there's a motivated party who can get right in there and, and market directly to you and get you to switch, uh, defaults in that situation are not going to be successful. Well, if we have a situation where straight-out information is uh, cannot well be understood, if further adding to the process a consumer financial education really doesn't seem to produce better judgment, and even default uh, nudges can be undone uh, without great difficulty by motivated sellers, uh, what else is there? Well, the general uh, requirements that currently are out there, the, the, the challenges that are out there for folks financially, I think need to be changed so that we're not being asked to do as much as we're currently being asked to do. Uh, and in fact, the reality is I am not asked to do all that much financially. So I have an employer who sets up a retirement plan for me. I just have to, all I have to do is, you know, check the boxes to put my money into some kind of savings. Uh, My employer has uh, health insurance set up for me, so I don't have to go out there and study, you know, find all these different insurance plans, study them and figure out, you know, which ones actually cover things and which ones have these sort of bogus uh, per day limits and that kind of thing that we've heard about in the news is causing people a lot of debt. Um, I have an employer who does a lot of that stuff for me. And it really makes sense that we all have someone who does that kind of stuff for us because I don't want to waste my time figuring that all out, never mind, uh, you know, those folks who can't figure it out. You know, my mom, although uh, she's now semi-retired, she uh, is a weaver. So she's an artist. She works for herself. We currently expect her to go out in the marketplace and figure out all of this for herself. I mean, that's just silly. It doesn't make any sense. It's, it's completely inefficient as a society to have non-experts making all these decisions that 
are challenging even for experts. Uh, and so uh, a reduction in the complexity, essentially, uh, facing various ver- people in their various uh, financial decisions, I think, uh, would be of great assistance. In addition, there are some things that at first seem kind of unrelated, but then when you start looking at them in more depth, actually might uh, be quite helpful. Uh, for basic things like just basic uh, budgeting, day-to-day budgeting, um, in addition to, of course, changing employer uh, wage structures such that people had more predictable income, another thing uh, we could do is increase people's basic math skills. So not their understanding of stocks versus bonds or how a mortgage works or anything like that, but just basic you know, addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division. And to do that, uh, we might have better math education in our schools. But another finding uh, that has come out of some of this literature trying to look at people's financial outcomes uh, is that prenatal environment can have a huge effect on math ability. And so it may be that really focusing on prenatal care and some on, you know, very early childhood uh, brain development and, and uh, things like breastfeeding and, uh, you know, other things that we know are good for early childhood brain development. I mean, and, and I mean very early, like infancy brain development, uh, will make a bigger difference in people's math abilities, which could make a bigger difference in people's uh, financial outcomes than any kind of education we try to give people once their math abilities are pretty much already set in the brain. Um, and so sometimes when I say that to people, people say, well, way, that's, that's just way out of left field. But, you know, we are trying to train people in their 20s to save money for when they are going to retire 50 years later. It's not that big of a jump to say, well, what we should really focus on is, you know, people ages negative nine months to two years um, and uh, focus on improving their math. Uh, the parts of their brains that do math uh, or will do math one day for their uh, retirement, uh, the well-being of their retirement 70 years uh, out. Well, it seems that most people, uh, as you mentioned before, don't try to read the uh, results of their uh, medical tests on their own. You know, they go to their doctor and have the doctor interpret the the results of those tests for them. Uh, What's uh, holding people back from uh, seeking out expert advice dealing with what we currently have, which is combination of information and product overload. Well, one issue is that we don't have a lot of low-cost expert advice out there. I mean, folks who have a lot of money, uh, well, there are you know plenty of people <laughs> trying to get their business uh, and giving them financial advice. But folks that have less money uh, are not getting financial advice. There isn't a lot of low-cost financial advice out there, or at least not low-cost, good-quality advice. There are plenty of shucksters out there trying to sell you on this and that investment, uh, which, you know, really turns out uh, to be sending money to uh, to some kind of Ponzi scheme or whatnot. Uh, and so lower-income folks both don't have the money to pay for good expert advice and uh, are rightfully wary of uh, people who come and sort of try to market their advice uh, to that segment. And so I think we need much better regulation of the advice sector. 
uh, a finding that has come out of um, some some randomized studies where testers were sent in to get financial advice from various financial advisors, uh, and the testers didn't know that's what they were doing, that they were testing the quality of financial advice. Uh, the testers came back and said, oh, yeah, we got this great advice. Um, and then uh, when the researchers looked at the advice, the advice was very self-interested, that the financial advisors steered folks towards investments that would result in bigger commissions for the financial advisors. Uh, so we need to regulate those commission structures. We need to regulate uh, the conflict of interest that currently exists in a lot of the financial advice sector. Um, so we've, we've got to do some work there. Uh, before we're going to have, uh, you know, the equivalent of, uh, of doctors uh, in the financial area. And I want to bring together two maybe disparate thoughts that you mentioned and get, get your thought about, about them. On the one hand, you've pointed out that uh, for the uh, lower income wage earners in the United States today, their incomes are both low and unpredictable, which seems to be a function largely of the globalization of uh, financial and industrial uh, economies that we have in the world today. On the other hand, you pointed out that a solution to some of these uh, problems, particularly with regard to biases, is uh, early childhood or even earlier intervention in stabilizing uh, family and community structures. In other words, we seem to have a very uh, communitarian or need to have a communitarian revolution, if you will, to bring together an entirely different way of organizing our society to, in order to resolve these sorts of problems. Uh, two questions. Number one, uh, does that make sense? Number two is, how, how do we go about achieving such a thing? Um, well, as to the globalization point, I, I'm not sure that's true. I mean, globalization it has affected our country, but it's also affected countries in Europe, and yet countries in Europe, low low-income wage earners don't have the kind of unpredictable uh, situation that uh, employees do in the United States. So it's not a, a globalization that's created this problem. Um, in terms of the early childhood interventions, I'm not sure it's as radical as a communitarian revolution. Um, I think that sounds um, perhaps... Uh, too ambitious uh, or more ambitious than I think we uh, necessarily need to be. Uh, just things like, uh, you know, more support for breastfeeding, more support for pregnant women, better medical care for pregnant women, um, better structures, uh, as, as you mentioned about the st stability of um, people's environments in the early years, so not you know, running kids around to a bunch of different foster placements, uh, things like that, keeping kids in more stable environments, uh, putting more resources into making sure that child abuse and neglect doesn't happen in the first place. Uh, so more investigative resources and going after it more aggressively. Uh, those kinds of things uh, are not so radical um, really, there are things we already do to some extent, but we should do more of and better. Uh, and those could really make a big difference um, in terms of um, what um, a word I haven't mentioned yet, but but is implicated in this is uh, executive function. So one of the things that behavioral economics has found is that folks willpower 
is quite limited. And it turns out that you have better willpower when your executive function works better, what, what psychologists call executive function. And executive function is a, like math ability. It's one of those things that needs to be nurtured in the womb and in early childhood. Uh, and the way to do that is through uh, nutrition and through stable environment. Uh, but nutrition and stable environment, that's, you know, that, that just seems like just basic general you know, public health, doing more of what we already do, it's not really a communitarian revolution. Um, perhaps this will be, uh, we can wrap it up with this. Do you have any insights or do we have, we seen the results of any empirical research dealing with uh, field testing of what we could call point of sale uh, consumer financial education? That is uh, disclosures coupled with uh, more uh, informative uh, directing of people as they are about to engage in financial transactions which might might not be in their best interest. Yeah, so there's been some work with trying to do that, trying to educate people uh, at the moment that they're making a financial decision. In some sense, all disclosures are trying to do that, right? Um, now, if you're trying to educate someone about the financial transaction that they've really already decided to engage in at the time they get the disclosure, it's too late, right? People, psychological mindset is in uh, an execute mindset, not in a decision mindset. They've already made their decision. Some recent work by Marianne Bertrand and Adair Morse give folks disclosures at uh, when they when they get a payday loan, uh, because many payday loan borrowers, in fact, the 97% of them are repeat customers. Uh, so give them some educational materials to bring home with them when they take the loan. And so that's sort of targeting the educational materials to the folks who can actually use that information. Uh, educating me about a payday loan isn't going to do very much good for the world because I don't use them in the first place. So um, there has been some positive effect of doing that. It seemed that there was a reduction in uh, the borrowing both in terms of how much and how frequently uh, payday loan borrowers uh, borrowed in the future after they had received these disclosures. And the disclosures uh, particularly tried to not so much maybe educate them at any deep level, but to point out that uh, they needed to think about how much this was going to cost them over the long term as opposed to how much it costs in the two, the first two weeks during which they're borrowing. So a $55 fee maybe doesn't seem like a lot of money for uh, borrowing money for two weeks, but when you then realize that the average borrower actually rolls over the loan at least five times, uh, you realize that it starts adding up and that it's, in fact, much more expensive uh, and that there are alternatives that would be cheaper uh, things like um, even high-rate credit cards uh, would be cheaper. Um, and so this kind of information was given to folks, and it seemed to make a difference. Now, my concern is that in that study, the payday lender had no opportunity to respond to this new disclosure of sorts that was being given to folks, uh, had no ability to shape their own marketing to react to it, and I suspect that uh, if it were to become required that this information be 
given to payday loan borrowers, uh, a few things would happen. One is that payday loan borrowers would get used to receiving the information and would stop paying any attention to it. I mean, the first time you receive something, you maybe read it through, but nobody reads those HIPAA forms anymore, right, the health privacy forms. Um, but uh, in addition to sort of ignoring something after being exposed to it a bunch, uh, I think that lenders would respond with various forms of marketing that would obscure the information or uh, perhaps lead borrowers to, uh, to think that the information was incorrect or um, discount uh, the information in the disclosure. Um, I'm not a lender, and I don't know exactly how they would respond, uh, but I have no doubt that their ingenuity uh, would lead to some kind of marketing response uh, that could undermine the effects of the disclosure. Um, but that's not to say that this is, this is hopeless. It, it's something that might be tried. Well, thank you very much, Lauren. This, I think, has been uh, very, very informative and uh, should uh, ring home to the people who practice in the area of consumer bankruptcy, particularly and indeed to all of us as we look to uh, craft uh, better legislative and regulatory and other solutions more broadly to the problems of financial uh, instability that we see among so many people today. Thank you, Scott. Until our next podcast, this is Scott Pryor on behalf of the American Bankruptcy Institute. Mm-hmm.